regardless how remotely they resemble what's mentioned in Scripture, if they profess to believe in Jesus Christ in some way, shape, or form, then they're called Christians. The religion is called Christian. The belief in Christ that some of these groups have as the founder of Christianity may involve a lot of different things. It may involve that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. It may just involve that he was a person of history who lived and died, maybe not even divine. There are religions that call themselves Christian that believe that about Christ. So a lot of different things are believed about Jesus by those who call themselves and are called Christians. So what we want to do tonight is try to take ourselves out of the denominational melu that we have in mind today about what Christianity is and what the church is and just go back and think about what God put in place in the first century in the New Testament. And by way of instruction and help, I think, contrast that with what men have come up with today, just briefly. So this material will not be very new to many of you who are older Christians. Some who are younger Christians may never have heard some of this. I think it's the kind of thing that's important to go over uh, every once in a while so that we all understand where the world is today as far as what they call Christianity and where God wants us to be as he set things in order in the first century. That's sort of the premise of the lesson. Ancient Christianity, well, that assumes Christianity is ancient, doesn't it? That's a fact of history, that Christianity is ancient. We have lots of relics and shrines and things that were left over from the ancient practice of Christianity, whether you're talking about uh, a mosaic on the floor of a church near the Sea of Galilee that has, you know, loaves and fishes, or whether you're talking about a tomb that some say is the tomb of Christ, or whether you're talking about an ancient document that dates back to the early 2nd century that is, in fact, a writing of one of the four Gospels, in this case, the Gospel of Matthew that's on your screen, or whether you're talking about a bone box or an ossuary in which, apparently, the bones of Caiaphas, the high priest who said Jesus needed to be crucified, uh, were found. Lots and lots and lots and lots of things that indicate, in fact, yes, that Christianity is a very, very ancient religion going back to the first century. There are historical references to it in the first century, way outside the Bible. Romans writing to one another, Josephus writing, all sorts of different things that we could point to to say, whether you believe the Bible or not, Christianity is an ancient religion. How did it get started? How did God start it? Modern denominationalism, what we need to understand, is not ancient Christianity. And I say this, again, to to people who know this, probably, (laughs) but I think we get pulled into this trap, even those of us who have some understanding of the things I'm talking about, we get pulled into this trap of looking at the Church of Christ as one group among many groups practicing Christianity. So we have, in fact, a denominational view 
of what the Lord's church is. It's very denominational sometimes. And it's easy to get pulled into that trap. So, you know, you have the Lutherans, the Catholics, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Church of Christ, and you just, that just, they're all just different. That's the way we see it. But modern denominationalism is not ancient Christianity in any way, shape, or form. And to the degree that we become or participate in modern denominationalism, we're not what God created us or designed the church to be. Denominationalism, as we know it, did not exist in the first century. It's wholly and completely a creation of human beings since the first century. Again, these are just facts of history. In the New Testament, there was one church, the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul could write, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is the unity of what God has given us in the church. When Paul says there is one body, I should point out that he had earlier said in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, that Christ is head over all things to the church, which is his body. Now, I don't think you have to be much past third grade to get this. If there is one body, and the body is the church, how many churches are there? That would be one, right? (laughs) We could all sort of figure that out. Jesus Christ had said, I will build my church. And Paul is writing that that's what was in existence as he writes to the Ephesian church in those passages. Local churches who met in various cities and places were united by a consistent message delivered by the apostles and prophets of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul could teach that his ways in Christ, were to be taught everywhere, he says, in every church. You see, there, there's, there was a time when if it was a church, and it was a church which belonged to Jesus, that the same message would be taught in that church as we, we taught in the next church, and the next church, and the next church, by the apostles and prophets of Jesus Christ. The same things were taught in every church. So there's a problem with that today, because frankly, we could go down the road here, Uh, within probably a mile circumference of where we're meeting tonight and find about 20 places that call themselves churches that would not let me come preach there and we would not let their preacher come preach here because we don't speak the same things. Because the same thing is not being taught and will not be taught in all those places. That's denominational Christianity. That's not what you had. In the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 3. In verses 3 and 5. 3 through 5. We find that in the New Testament age. People could read words of the apostles and prophets. And have have the same understanding. Of what was being said. And of the message of the gospel. Paul talks about in Ephesians 3 and verse 3. How that by revelation, God made known to me, he says, the mystery, as I've already written, 
by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So the apostles and prophets of Christ were revealed, to them was revealed, the mystery of the gospel. It had been hidden for ages and generations, but now it is revealed and Paul says, we've written it, and when you read it, you can have my understanding in the mystery. Somebody says, well, we have different understandings. When people say that, they don't understand what understand means. You don't, there's no such thing as a different understanding. If we understand it, then we have the same thing in our minds. He says, when you read, you can understand my knowledge. What would be in the minds of those who read is what was in Paul's mind when he wrote it. That's what we have in the first century. People could read those words and understand them. And divisions, denominations, were condemned. So I've been using this word denomination uh, quite a bit, and let me just stop to spend a minute defining that word. Have you ever done a division problem? Back maybe when you're in school, of course nobody does those anymore, we just punch it into a calculator or something. But if you ever were taught how to do division, you probably heard about a denominator, right? That's a thing you divide by. So a de denomination is a division. It's just a division. It's you, you have a pie and you cut it up in sections. We call that sects or denominations, right? You have money in your pocket. And we call it denominations. What does that mean? It's a part of the whole. And so that's the concept that men have come up with and that is prevalent in the world today, but is not biblical. As we said, it's condemned. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for instance, in verse 10, Paul nips in the bud, to quote Barney Fife, <laughs> nips in the bud the problem of incipient denominationalism. When he says to the Corinthians exactly this, he says, I plead with you, brethren, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Speak the same things, think the same things, judge the same things, that you're all joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. What's the problem, Paul? Why are you having to tell them this? Verse 11, For it has been signified or declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, Peter, or I am of Christ. So among the Corinthians, you had this sectarian spirit developing, this denominational spirit developing, where some were saying, I'm following Paul's way. Somebody else saying, I'm following Apollos' way. Somebody else saying, I'm following Peter or Cephas' way. Somebody else, well, I'm following Christ. And so already they were beginning to denominationalize the church in Corinth. And Paul says, uh-uh, no. Was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? They were baptized into Christ. And following Christ... We cannot split up to follow men. 
That's as, as clear as anything that was ever written in Scripture. That's clear from what Paul's saying here. And somehow, that's exactly what then men over the centuries have proceeded to do. Exactly what Paul strictly condemns and says must not be done in this passage. How does that form? How does that show itself in the world today? When I was a boy, I remember preachers preaching on this subject matter. And the common statistic that was heard in a number of sermons was, well, you know, there are over 300 denominations. And then about the time I got in college, I heard some preachers start saying, well, nowadays there are a thousand denominations. Then 1,240 denominations. I don't know who was doing the counting. This last week I looked up on Christianity.com. Yep, there's a place. That website estimates that there are now 40,000 Christian denominations worldwide. 40,000. When Christ built one church. What have we done? Well, it's a lot worse than fire ants in North Alabama, I can tell you that. We brought in stuff that doesn't belong. We've done things. Humanity has done things to the church that God never intended. We've got to come to grips with this. Both those who I'm preaching to here tonight and certainly the world at large that calls themselves Christians. A little bit of a history lesson. Where did the denominations come from? Lutheran Church, very famously, uh, after the work of Martin Luther in the early 1500s, was founded really after his death. He would not be pleased with a church named after him. I I had a a conversation interview one time a few years ago with a, a preacher of the Lutheran Church in Gadsden, Alabama. His name, great name, Gary Faith. If you're going to be a preacher, that's a pretty good name. Uh, But not the Gary part, Gary, but the faith part. Uh, (laughs) But I had a conversation with him about the Lutheran church and, you know, what it believed, what it practiced, where it got started. And that's what he said. He said, yeah, Luther would be mad to know that there was a church named after him today. What Luther, of course, was trying to do was reform the Catholic church. Some of the abuses having to do with uh, selling of indulgences and so on and so forth of his day, and he challenged uh, the authority of the Catholic Church, and they weren't going to change, and so after his death, really, the Lutheran Church was formed. About 1520 was the beginning of it, maybe a little bit after that, but that's, that's where it began. And then around that same time period is what we call the Reformation movement developed in 1534. In England, King Henry VIII decided that he wanted a divorce again, and <laughs> Uh, the Pope wasn't going to let him have it, so just to cut to the chase, you know, he started his own church. And that's where the Church of England or the Episcopalian Church comes from today. Presbyterians were begun by a movement centered around John Calvin in Switzerland. 
and Calvin uh, really got people believing that there should be a direct tie between the church and the state, that the church should really kind of run the state, and it did uh, where he was in that area. Calvin had a lot of different beliefs than the Catholics, certainly, and then Luther did as far as that goes, and uh, got people believing those things, and that's influenced a lot of so-called Christians today, some of Calvin's thinking, but Presbyterians got started in 1536 in Switzerland. The Baptists started uh, also in Holland, but soon migrated uh, to Britain and elsewhere in about 1607 by John Smith. The Methodist Church and the Methodists themselves will tell you when they got started, uh, they were founded by John and Charles Wesley in England about 1739. Uh, these men seeking a systematic or methodical way of worshiping God and coming closer to him. Uh, and that's from their practices the Methodist church was born. You have the Mormon church, which was started in the clear light of history by Joseph Smith in the 1830s. So those are just a few of the, how many did I say, 40,000 uh, denominations and where they came from and how they got started and why they got started. A lot of people, not everybody or not even the majority per se, but many would say that the Catholic Church is the representative of ancient Christianity in our time. And it is true that Catholicism gave birth to most all of the denominations of the Reformation movement. As I said already, Lutheranism and Protestantism as a whole came out of rebellion against the Catholic Church. But Roman Catholicism as a full-grown entity cannot be traced back to the time of Jesus and the Apostles. Many non-Catholic reference works will put the beginning of the Catholic Church as we know it today to the time of Pope Gregory I around 600 AD. So almost any non-Catholic uh, work that you read about the beginning of the Catholic Church will put it at about 600 A.D. The scriptures do, in fact, speak of the development of the Catholic Church. I have a, a sermon I preach sometimes, denominations you can find in the scriptures. There are quite a number that you can find in the scriptures, although there were no denominations there, because the error and the apostasy that would come after the New Testament age is prophesied of in the New Testament. So I'll give you a for instance of that. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, uh, Paul says, the Spirit, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So, two well-known doctrines of the Catholic Church is that their clergy cannot marry and that certain foods are to be abstained from on certain days. That's not as much now as it was 50 years ago, but that's why so many people just eat fish on Fridays, if you want to know. It comes right out of Catholicism. And it's prophesied of in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Going back in ancient times, the first real departure from the apostolic way 
was a departure in the leadership of the churches. And again, you can trace this historically, where churches in some of the larger cities, uh, their eldership allowed one of the elders to be elevated above the others. And pretty soon that one elder elevated above the others in that particular church was also put in charge of other churches in the general area, the metropolis. And so he would be called, this one elder would be called the metropolitan bishop. And that's where the concept of one bishop over an area and then over a bigger area and over a bigger area. And finally, by the time we get to 600 AD, one bishop over all of the churches and they called him the Pope. But that, that process began very early perhaps by the end of the first century, where bishops or elders in congregations began to be elevated one above the other and be given power over not just that group, but other groups as well. And frankly, Paul the Apostle warned elders about that kind of thing. If you read Acts chapter 20 and verses 28 through 30, where Paul is speaking to the elders from the church at Ephesus, he says... Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also, notice this, from among yourselves, men will rise up. I just want you to think about that phrase. (laughs) From among yourselves, elders, men will rise up speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. And that indeed is what happened. If we study, and we don't have, this is not a study of Catholicism, if we study the Catholic Church and its teachings over the centuries, we find a number of things that it teaches uh, that are contrary to Bible doctrine, the first of them probably most significant. I mentioned in a sermon just last week that their traditions are more sure and safe than the Bible as far as a guide goes. But we see among them the doctrine of transubstantiation that teaches that the bread and the fruit of the vine literally become the body and the blood of Christ when you take it. That was officially adopted as a doctrine in A.D. 1215. The doctrine of celibacy for the priesthood in 800 A.D. The doctrine of purgatory 593 A.D., the legalization and general practice of sprinkling, although it had been done earlier, was not uh, accepted fully by the Catholic Church until 1311. So a lot of those things were not part of the church as it existed in the first century. Ancient Christianity. What do you have when you look at it? You have men and women hearing a simple gospel message and responding to it in simple obedience. If you look at the sermon that Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, he talks about Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, crucified and resurrected. And he says to those Jews gathered on the day of Pentecost from every nation under heaven, he says in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So there's the gospel message. And here's the response in verse 41. Then those that gladly received His Word argued that they didn't have to be baptized to be saved. How ridiculous. Those that gladly received His Word were baptized. They just did what He said to do. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And in verse 47 you learn that they were praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It's the New King James Version. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, Philip is preaching in Samaria. And the text says, when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. They believed it. They obeyed it. What a, what a simple formula. What a simple beginning to the New Testament church. I want you to notice that infant baptism, by the way, is not being practiced. Specifically, the text that we're looking at in Acts 8 and verse 12, the terms men and women are used. As, a po- as opposed to, by the way, terms that would allow for boys and girls to be included But here, men, mature men, and women, not girls, not damsels, not virgins, as other maidens, other words could have been used, but not those words. Men and women were baptized. That's ancient Christianity. Simple message, simple obedience. Those who spoke for God, who were speaking God's word by revelation, were identified by the miracles the signs and wonders which they performed. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Jesus, we know, was God's Son, and we know spoke God's Word because of the miracles, signs, and wonders. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus had promised that the apostles would be given power in the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 2 then, the Hebrew writer wonders, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. What do we learn there? That not just anybody could rise up and say, hey, I, I, God told me to tell you something. you got to do this. you got to do this because God said it. Well, how do we know God told you that? Well, I'm just telling you God told me that. Or we got a council together and we voted. The Pope said it. How do I know God told you to do that? In ancient Christianity, the way people knew that Jesus Christ and His apostles and prophets We're speaking for God, miracles, signs, and wonders that were undeniable, that were clearly done in the presence of people. 
That's how they knew the message was from God. Elders or bishops who met God's qualifications, and he gives them for us in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, were appointed to oversee the church where they served. Not a big city uh, of many churches, not churches all over a region, not a diocese, not all over a country, not all over the world, but where they served. And so you have in Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, they appointed elders in every church, you see. Titus was to appoint elders in every city in Crete. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 2, Peter tells elders to shepherd the flock which is among you. Shepherd the flock which is among you, serving as overseers. In the first century, the word of God was the final authority. Creeds and dogmas of men were unknown. There weren't any. There was no creed to which you had to sign your uh, agreement to or allegiance to to be able to worship in a given place, be accepted in a certain fellowship. There was none of that. Men were told to speak. If any man speaks as the oracles of God, let him speak. Fellowship was determined by teaching the gospel of Christ. If anyone goes onward and does not abide in this doctrine, that's the person you don't have fellowship with. He who abides in the doctrine has the Father and the Son. John gives specific directions about that in 2 John verses 9 through 11. No local church or group of churches wore names to identify themselves that were invented by men or after men, or after men's doctrines. There was no, certainly no Lutheran church. There was certainly no Baptist church named after a doctrine concerning baptism. There was certainly no Methodist church named after methods of worshiping and serving God. There was certainly no Episcopalian church named after a certain sort of church organization and leadership, the Episcopal format. And on and on we could go. There was certainly no Pentecostal church. No such thing. Named after what happened on Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit there. None of that. There was none of that. And so because of that, there were no Pentecostals, there were no Baptists, there were no Methodists, there were no none of that. And there were no Church of Christers either. There were just Christians. They were called by different names in Scripture. They were called Christians. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, Acts 11.26. Disciples called Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul writes to the saints that are in Corinth. They're called saints more than anything else in the New Testament. As a group, they're called the body of Christ. And if you were part of that group, you were called a member of that body. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, they were called believers in many places. And they were called disciples, as we mentioned. And they practiced, as we've already said, the same thing. Christians assembled together on the first day of the week to observe the Lord's Supper, as in Acts 20 and verse 7. They would sing praise to God. They would pray, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15. They'd hear preaching, as they did in Acts 20 and verse 7. 
They take of the Lord's Supper as they did in 1 Corinthians 11. They give on the first day of the week, as is patterned for us in 1 Corinthians 16. Their worship was simple, it was sincere, it was not elaborate, it was not built to entertain. There were no dramatic productions to placate the man's desire for entertainment and theater. There were no bands to entertain us. Religion was not a big business. The churches were not into the social gospel where their mission was to cure all the ills of society and and politics. That was nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament church. The one hope, the one hope of humankind, the one hope of anybody who ever lived is salvation in Jesus Christ. That alone can change your life and change the world. And that was the message of New Testament Christianity. That was it. It was Jesus. He was the end all and the be all and the everything you needed and the everything anybody ever needed. It was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The message of the cross. Paul tells the Corinthians, I did not come to you with persuasive words of wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus and Him crucified. How far have we come from that? There was a right way to do God's work in the church. Notice what Paul writes to Timothy, a gospel preacher with whom Paul worked. He writes two letters to him. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, he says the reason he's writing to Timothy. He says, I write to you that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Think about that. There was a way that Timothy was supposed to go about doing what he was doing as an evangelist. There was a way that churches were to be organized and the work was to be done in churches. And it all centered around Jesus and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't a, you can do whatever you want, Timothy. Don't worry about it. There are no rules. That's what we hear today. There's no rules about this. We do, what, you know, we do whatever we feel like. Paul says there's a way you ought to behave yourself in the church. There's an ought. So it's high time that we stop viewing the church in the framework of denominationalism. And I'll just tell you frankly that it's hard to do. But we're called to something higher. Something far beyond the religious mess that we see in the world today. And far beyond even maybe what we have previously and maybe some of our ancestors conceived concerning the Church of Christ. It's not a denomination. It's not. We can make it one. We can do things and say things and act in certain ways that make it one. But it's not. As God ordained it. Jude verse 3. I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. 
I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the faith. That's the faith that I'm contending for that you need to contend for. It's not how am I different from all the other denominations or where do I fit into the idea of Christianity in the world today. It's what do I find in the New Testament of Jesus Christ in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? That's what I want to believe. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to practice. That's what I know you want to do and believe and practice as well. That's it. And that's all of it. And so tonight, that's what we offer here. That's what Christ offers. And the message is the same as it ever was. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a beautiful life. He died a shameful death. He rose again and lives forever. And if you believe that and turn away from your sin, confess his name, tonight be baptized for the remission of your sins, you can be a New Testament Christian. We'd ask you to come while we stand and sing.